Hello and welcome back to Commodity Conversations by the team at Mercado, the podcast where we aim to keep you up to date with the latest trends, drivers and moves in livestock, grain and oilseed and fibre markets. I'm Olivia Agar. Thank you for tuning in to episode 190. But there are clearly some big stories impacting commodity markets. We have the flow-on effects of the Ukraine-Russia war, trade with China, food shortages, global inflation, and it's all these that grab the headlines and they are disruptions that impact markets for the better or worse. But the underlying drivers of demand are important to keep in focus and we're going to talk about all these things today. In fact, we're letting David Cornish and Robert Herman loose and we get two episodes worth of content. So today we're covering the big picture and next week we'll focus in on a few commodities in a little more detail. But David Cornish is a regular guest on this podcast. He's Director of Agribusiness at Marcus Oldham Agricultural College and also host of their own podcast, Ag Talk, which we're big fans of. So much so that David is running the show on these episodes, but we knew that you'd enjoy them too, so we wanted to share them here on Commodity Conversations. Before we do jump into the episode though, there are a few big ticket items affecting ag market movements locally this week. And it was the last week of the 2021-22 wool season and just a little eventful. We were already heading into the week with a very large offering of wool on the table as is usually expected at the end of financial year. But news rippled through the auction room that one of the largest wool processing facilities in China had a serious fire. And as more details emerge on the damage, we will get more of an idea of what was lost and what product might need to be replaced eventually. But for this week, it saw a pretty erratic market, which ended lower than the week prior. And also playing a part in that were some logistical issues that delayed buyers' funds. For our latest updates on grain and oilseed, cattle and sheep markets, head to the Mercado website. And for now, we'll jump into the episode with David Cornish and Robert Herman. It's my pleasure today to welcome Robert Herman to Ag Talk. As people would know, I've had Robert on before. Robert is Managing Director of Mercado, and we're here today to talk about prices, both inputs and outputs, uh, because obviously it's probably a, a good time to be talking because I think it's this is the first time in a long time that I would suggest that there's a lot of factors out there that are affecting what's happening with both short-term and long-term prices that we haven't seen before, or they've been magnified. Welcome, Robert. How are you going? I'm going good, David, and thank you very much. Uh, really interesting topic, I think. Yeah, <laughs> We wouldn't have a job if it wasn't, mate. <laughs> so let's start. Let's. I think let's take a step back. And, and before we delve down into prices, I think it's really important that we, we, we sort of have a conversation about, let's call them the, the big trends, the big factors that are that have been affecting demand and supply factors across the world, because I think never before have they sort of been magnified as we're seeing at the moment. Well, that's a good place to start, David. Um, and I think there are two elements to this. One is what are the, the general drivers, those high-level drivers of demand that, that ultimately filter down and, and impact us at, at the silo, at the sale yards or at the wool auction or wherever we're selling? What are, the, what are those big factors? But then there are also the big stories, if you like, that impact on agriculture. So the big stories are things like African swine fever, um, some new trade agreements, uh, the rebuild of the flock and the herd post-drought. The drought was a big story and now the rebuild. The, the Russia-Ukraine war is is a massive story, especially for grains. 
and of course COVID-19. But they're sort of the stories. But something we've been talking about and thinking about a lot in recent times, David, is that there is a bigger picture to this whole thing. And the, way, the best way I've explained it, I think, to date is to talk about where it all started. And I think it started around about the time we had our global financial crisis. And if you remember back to then, David, we did pretty well through the global financial crisis. And the reason we did pretty well was because um, countries, and specifically and probably focused on China, were wanting our raw materials, our minerals, our coal and whatnot. And the reason they wanted, and that supported our economy, which helped us skate through the global financial crisis, with with the you know nowhere near the impacts that other countries had, so, but but the reason they wanted those commodities was what they were doing was in, in becoming industrialized, and their reason for becoming industrialized was that ultimately they wanted to grow the wealth of their population, and the way you grow the wealth of the population in countries that have large rural populations that are really just subsistence is you actually create things for them to do and and China if we use them as an example they're not the only country but they're certainly a key example David China did it by saying let's get these people into factories now that worked pretty well and and then we saw over a period of time we have seen for some time now that amazing GDP figures coming out of China you know we've always been mesmerized by how strong their GDP growth was and what that was doing was translating uh, income and 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 wealth back into the families and those families are now ex, you know have done very well china's done very well those families have done very well and they are now looking to spend that money and that's where we come in and i think it's worth pointing out and i saw this in a twitter feed robert i guess i do spend too much time on it um <laughs> where this person uh, grabbed uh world population growth rates since 1700 and looked at the top 10 countries and, and, and what we have today is that we have two countries, India and China, who make up over 50% of the total world population. So that's the first point. And I often talk about this point. Having people is one thing. Then having the money to buy our commodities is another thing. And as you quite rightly turned, uh, pointed out, we've had this uh, increase in disposable income and populations together which has only fed into the demand for commodities, especially commodities that Australia builds. And if you actually look at the price trends since, I say, 2014, we've seen a completely different cycle to what we've had for 20 years before that. Exactly. And you, you make a really strong, good point about that, uh, that bubble, if you like, of where that large population is. And um, so, for instance, um, David, by 2030 there will be 10 times the middle class of people living in Asia than there are living in the US, 10 times. 10 so times, yeah. it's, and that tells us that this demand, markets will go up and down, we know that. Markets will fluctuate, but this underpinning of demand is driven by population growth, but more importantly, growth in population's wealth. And the one other factor that we know these things happen because they've happened before. They happen in countries like Korea and Taiwan, you know, when they, they came out after the Second World War and, and started to develop their economies. We know that this increased wealth, we know where the thresholds are, 
translates into the type of commodities we produce. And the best example for us is red meat, to be honest. I mean, that's where we really see it. But one other factor in this latest evolution, if you like, is the mobile phone. And there are people, it always surprises you, people who travel to, you know, countries that are struggling, whether you're in Africa or Asia or wherever, and you're always surprised by the number of people with mobile phones. And, And to the credit of the mobile phone companies, they seem to make them very cheap in those countries. But what it means is that those people, even before they get wealthy, are connected to the and understand what is going to be possible when they get money. So they understand that you're going to be able to buy McDonald's hamburgers. They understand that you're going to be able to eat, add meat into your diet, into your rice-based diet. So they understand all those things. And so their aspiration is crystallised at an early stage. I, I think there's a really tangible part of that too, is that especially in developing countries where I'm not saying banks are corrupt or banks are anything along those lines, but for I, the, I hope you're not, because I'd have to put a disclaimer in right now, Dave. Exactly. Of course not. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that uh, the ability to do a transaction in some of these countries is is difficult. But what and a friend of mine who worked for a Visa uh, Africa. Now, what 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 mobile phone technology allows it it it, it democratizes the transactional ability so someone in the middle of nowhere can make a transaction which was unheard of uh, even when we were growing up rob if you can remember back that long that the, yeah. the ability to not have the banks involved mm. in a transaction mm. frees up the whole exchange system which only adds more systems or processes into into the ability to actually make a transaction and that's got to be a good thing. Absolutely. And, and you know, we start this conversation by saying, what are the big drivers? I think, you know, the, the global population has never been wealthier. It's in, in, you know, depends who you talk to, of course. It's also never been healthier. But it has, it, it now has, we see it with our demand. It now has the ability to quickly consume and, and purchase and, and uh, import products and um, that, are, that are of higher protein values, if we're talking about food, and, and also higher quality fibres. And that's what's really assisting us to, to, um, to see this, this steady and strong demand. So, you know, the, the I guess the precursor or the, the um, you know, the takeaway from this is that, yes, things will be good, but we will see you know, hiccups. And, uh, you know, at the moment we're seeing one, which is the Ukraine-Russian war, which has probably added about 150 to $200 a tonne onto the global price of wheat. So that's a hiccup. And there'll be things that will happen the reverse of that. But we should not lose sight that the underpinning driver is is this demand, this fundamental demand that's building and growing. And I think, David, you know, the, the investment that's going into agriculture right now is recognising that. It's saying we want to be involved in this and that's why we're seeing, um, you know, people trying to buy land at all costs. So just just going back to that hiccup, the Ukraine war, is that a good thing or a bad thing for Australian economy or agriculture? Yeah, well... Because <laughs> I can't make up my mind at the moment. I know it, it's simple to say mm. that wheat prices have gone two to $300 above mm. and obviously that's one effect. But the other f- effect is obviously inputs into agriculture. And, yeah. and, and and is it right to say that the Ukraine war is obviously having a significant impact on, for instance, fertiliser prices and fuel prices? Mm. 
Well, it is. It is. But it's interesting because the impact on in coming out of that area, Russia, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, is it's a logistics problem. You know, that we haven't suddenly shut up the oil world. So we haven't suddenly, you know, stopped growing wheat in Russia or, or Ukraine. It, it's a logistics problem. And so I think, and that's not good. If you, if you look at it from Australian farmers' perspective, we markets like, you know, pretty steady, stable conditions. And given that, and, and given the previous discussion we've just had about uh, improving demand and growing demand, uh, we would see a steady um, growth in our agricultural commodities and our uh, farm in- incomes. But it's the ructions that worry uh, markets. And and so one example of that, this may be that this evolves where, if I said it's a logistics problem, if the logistic is is uh, corrected, however that is, I mean, I've got no idea how that will happen, just like I had no idea that it would be a Russia would invade Ukraine. Um, but if that got corrected, then we could see markets react quite strongly the opposite way. Yep. So we have elevated wheat prices because of the war. We could have wheat prices that are below what's considered fair value if that logistics problem got sorted. We have elevated fertiliser and fuel and gas prices. If that got sorted, we would have, you know, we could have, you know, prices go the other way as well. So... I, you know, for, from our perspective as, as commentators and observers of markets, this is all grist for the mill and it all gives you something to talk about. But I'm pretty sure markets and, and commodity producers and, and in the case of fertiliser and fuel, David, commodity consumers don't like these sorts of surprises. And I think that logistic question is, is interesting and something that I want to build on in our discussions because there's a whole lot of things happening around the world with regards to logistics, which I thought would would it's not only the Ukraine war, but also uh, a, a overhang from COVID, Robert. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, we're 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 so smart, David, these days that we can do things just in time. <laughs> you know, we can get talk for yourself. We can get toilet paper to the supermarkets just in time because that's the most efficient and cost-effective way of doing it. Uh, it means you don't have to carry a lot of stocks. You don't have to have a lot of uh, warehouses at the back of the supermarkets. Just in time works well when, when nothing goes wrong. Uh, and as we've seen, um, everybody who used the toilet paper example, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of PhDs written about it in the future, but as soon as there's a hiccup, all of a sudden we've got a shortage. And we then have panic, you know, yep. we, we, because as consumers, we're used to just in time. So we expect it to be there. So going back to our, to the grain, you know, we've seen grain supplies redirected as a result of, of the Russia-Ukraine war. Egypt's a classic example where Egypt, you know, is, a, is the biggest importer of, of wheat in the world. It had to suddenly make adjustments and get them from other places. And, you know, that's, that interrupts other markets. So there's a knock-on effect. The other one, and I, I think where you're going to here, David, is the other one is that just in time and that logistics system, that efficient logistics system that we've generated, works fine if when the ship arrives at port, it gets into the port, it gets unloaded, it gets reloaded, and it heads off again. Now, that's a great system. But if you've got, you know, the, the city shut down because of COVID, 
and the boats can't get in. So that one sits there and then the one behind it sits there and the one behind that, the one behind that. Uh, they're not only not doing anything, but they're not loading to take the next load. And so that's where the problems emerge. So, so and the obviously classic uh, situation there is in China where we've mm. got the situation where we've got boats lined up outside the, 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 the port of Shanghai or wherever and they just can't – it just almost – it's become – uh, undigestible the issues and so we, we, we that seems to perpetuate or snowball snowball the issue that results in supply chain issues in Australia which you know we, we all think COVID's done and dusted but we're still paying the price for the r- rally of COVID with regards to our ability to get inputs and get outputs out. Absolutely and it reinforces the fact that we do live in a global community we you know what you know, the butterfly flapping its wings in the African desert or African forest, um, it has a consequence all around the world. Um, And so, and we probably understand that because we are an export nation, especially where agricultural commodities are concerned, we rely on exports. So we know that what happens in these countries uh, impacts directly back to our sale yards or our wool auction room or our silo price. That said, you know, right now, the general um, impact on our commodities is positive. You know, there's no question yep. about that. So, but, you know, the, your, your question was, is it good or bad? I think for a long-term perspective, you don't want these sorts of impacts on markets because, um, you know, the, the you would have remembered your, um, I don't know, your science. For every action, there's a reaction. And, uh, you know, we will see reactions to these types of things. Um, especially if 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 we're right in in saying this is a logistics problem, there's a big incentive for traders to fix that problem right now because they want to trade and make money. If you thought about it, David, the you know Australian wheat we know is the cheapest wheat in the world, but you try getting another ship to to get a load of wheat out of here, it's very difficult. So, yep. but but there was a great incentive for traders to get that sorted. So, again, just on that sort of getting back to the Ukraine, I've heard up to 80% of wheat crop has been sown in Ukraine, even though we've got a war going on there. It's not a question that they've stopped growing it. Mm-hmm. As you said, it's just a question that they can't get it out of the country. So I suppose it's how long's a piece of string. I mean, that's at some stage we would hope and hope that it turns out the best for the people that that that, that – conflict gets resolved and we're back into normal trade and, and that's going to have a two-edge uh, it's going to be both from a grain perspective and then it's, it's a question around fuel and fertilizer mm. so it's not like that fuel and fertilizer has gone somewhere and been used it's it's what being stacked i suppose or it's not being dug out of the ground so it's hasn't gone anywhere so it's not like we're not going to get hold of it at some stage down in the future no that's right and um you know, the wheat situation in Ukraine, I, I'm not surprised that, um, I'll take it face value, that 80% of the yep. of potential crops being planted. I'm not surprised because we know farmers are remarkably inventive and uh, and able to get things done under, under a lot of duress. But one of the problems is going to be, David, that, you know, as we understand it, most of last year's harvest is still sitting in silence yep. and can't get out. So where's the next harvest go? Yep. So that'll be that'll be the next thing that will be um, that will come up for for, for their problem solvers. And, and with regards to China, is do you see a is that just a question of working the problem out, and that over time it will get back to normal, or is it 
is how long is your thoughts about that we that's going to be an issue within the, within international trade? Well, I, I don't profess to be a China expert, but what what we do know from looking back at history is that, uh, and I think it was Lenin who made the quote. Um, you know, he was another famous. Um, I don't know what would you call him, dictator or philosopher or something. <laughs> <laughs> but his comment was that uh, governments only survive for three days if people run out of food. Yeah. So, you know, take that to the current situation. Governments all around the world are acutely aware that they not only need to provide food, but they need to provide it in an affordable way. Mm. And I suppose you could add to that now, also provide the quality of food that people have come to expect. Otherwise, they get restless. And the last thing a government knows, uh, last thing a government wants to do, based on what we, we're observing, is that it doesn't want the population to be restless about food or water for that matter. So I think when you talk, it's interesting how quickly it seems post this election, suddenly, you know, the sabre rattling between us and China has, has become hugs and, you know, handshakes. Yep. And which is good. Don't get me wrong. It's great. But it, it does tell us that not, I mean, we understand the incentive we have as an exporting country to have every market we can up our sleeve, but we shouldn't underestimate that there are countries that China, especially that will never, ever be able to produce enough of the food, either in terms of quantity or quality that its population is demanding. And, and, you know, in the next, I think, um, in the next four years, their population of middle-class wealthy doubles. Yep. So, you know, we talk about what that means for us from demand point of view, but what it means from a central government point of view is that you've got to make sure that you're meeting those expectations. I, I, know, I noticed that the economist is saying, um, once again, we seem to be in this probably 15-year cycle that we're going to run out of food and the world's going to starve. Mm. Um, what's, your, what's your gut feel if you're a betting man on that or, or the ability for, once again, farmers to respond to price signals to, to, to meet the increased demand? Well, yeah, look, just in case you're right, David, I'm, I've got a block up at the bush where we're letting the rabbits grow and we're going to plant spinach. So just in case we do run out of food, <laughs> I'll welcome you up there and I'll give you a feed no, of rabbits I've got enough spinach. rabbits. <laughs> well, the first thing to say is that it hasn't happened before, and but that doesn't mean it won't happen. But yep. we know that one of the reasons it hasn't happened before is because agriculture has innovated. It's continued to innovate and increase productivity to meet world demands. There's, there's Nobody's saying there's a shortage of food. There has been a shortage of food, but there are places in the world where they are short of food. Mm. And that's more logistics and government activities and, and you know, corruption, those sort of things that, that impacts on the populations. So we'll, could we run out of food? Well, yes, we could. And, you know, I'm not even talking about climate or anything like that here. Um, if the population kept growing dramatically and uh, we, we went backwards in producing food for some reason, then that would be a disaster. Yeah. But I think... You know, I mentioned that before we got we get away with it by innovating. You know, we have got innovations ahead of us, and part of that will be intensifying uh, livestock production. You know, we will see increased numbers of feeding, intensive feedlots, that sort of thing, which mm. will um, help meet that demand. So, 
Yeah, look, it's not something I lie awake about worrying about yeah. at night, David, because I, I don't think we will see that happen. The, the, the other thing I saw you, you mentioned, I think, was African swine fever. I, I thought that's done and dusted and we don't have to worry about that. Well, the Chinese have got that under mm. control, and, mm. and which is going to result in, I suppose, pork uh, increasing and, and therefore affecting our prices for our meat. Would that be if yeah. – is that the, yeah, what, what are you right. seeing that's happening correct. there? That's correct. And, it, look, it's it's a negative against the uh, the positive of, of China having to slaughter – China slaughtered half their pigs, which was – a quarter of the world's pick. So, I mean, yep. that was a significant impact. But at the same time, they didn't come to Australia and say, right, are we going to take all your beef now and mm. that'll do us for the next three days, which is about what our total beef production yes. is compared to that gap. So we couldn't ignore the fact that African swine fever was an impact on the markets. But you made a good point. You said about 2014. We reckon about 2012 we saw China really start to ramp up their red meat imports and it was on the back of demand that had already well and truly started before African swine fever came along. That yes. was sort of the, a bit of kerosene on top of the fire that was already well and truly going, that demand. So that they have, by and large, they have fixed it. And again, that does go back to our, our point. They had to fix it very quickly because, you know, the risk was that suddenly if it, if it went on and, and wasn't addressed, they weren't able to fill those protein demand shortages and that would have been a disaster. And, and, you know, pork and chicken and fish to some degree, you know, they monster the red meat dem um, <laughs> demand in China. So they're, they're really their staples. Yep, yep. Okay, so I suppose it's now point. Let's jump off the deep end. Let's have a look at a few of the commodities. Mm. While we're on beef, let's start with beef. What, what What's in your crystal ball there? Well, I think a pretty solid outlook. And we've got to remember that the uh, the boom in in the cattle price started at the end of the drought. Okay, so yep. in the drought, we had this situation where more people were selling down their herds to manage their drought situation. There were more females being slaughtered. That turned around quite dramatically, you know, by mid-2020. And from there on, we've seen the market in recovery mode. The interesting thing is that we've had, since then, we've had really good seasons through the cattle country. Uh, you know, the northern monsoon would say, well, it wasn't great, but it certainly wasn't bad. And, of course, New South Wales, uh, which was really badly affected by the drought, has had a, had a ripping period of time. So that drought-led um, pro elevated price has continu continued for a while as people have restocking. And we see that in the compared to the meat price. You know, the old 90CL, which we often talk about, the the hamburger meat, which is a good indicator, usually tracks above the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator. Well, since about late 2020, it's the meat price has been lower than the cattle price. And remembering the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator contains quite a few cattle that are going to restockers and, yes. and backgrounders. So that's what's been happening there. The other thing, though, that is interesting and we think is a critical part to the cattle prospects is that uh, for the first time in the last quarter of last year, more than half the slaughtered cattle were uh, came from feedlots. Mm. Now, that's a combination of lower grass numbers, but it's also a factor that there are significant cattle on feed, about 1.1 million. That's, a, that's been a solid number for a long time. And that's at a time when grain prices are high and young cattle prices are high. So it tells us 
that the feed that, that sorry the feeder the fed steer the animals coming out of that feedlot are meeting strong demand so i think the risk is that we go into a tougher season yep um and uh, you know if you just want to speculate on that if if we did have a, a tough season in the north and i was a farm uh, a cattle producer up there I'd be dumping cattle pretty quickly at these prices. So if everybody started doing that, we could see the market retrace fairly strongly, especially when we're getting up towards 29 million head of cattle. You know, the, So there's an argument to say that the herd rebuild based on historical numbers will be getting close to finished. And if our season then was a bit, you know, a bit how's your father when we weren't going all that well, we may see that the supply suddenly starts to jump on the market. So, so but that would be likely to be uh, correspond with the, the next wet season. If it's That's a, right. If it's a crook That's wet right. season. So we're talking, what, um, late this year? Yeah. Uh, well, late this year, early next year. Yeah. So, That's right. So the, the, what we could say from those perspectives in that is the fundamentals are fairly sound for the rest of this year. Yeah, absolutely. And if you then look at, well, what else is happening? Well, we talked about demand, but if you talk about global supply, um, the US is still in a herd contraction stage, so they're slaughtering more. They're slaughtering enough cattle to reduce their herd. Mm. They will get very. We know that they turn that around. You know, they get to a point and they start to hold it yep. back and and build it. That will reduce supply into some of those key markets as well yep. when that happens. And that could be towards the end of this year, by our reckoning. Yep. What's happening in South America? I've sort of lost track these days, but you know, it seems to be that beast sitting there. Yeah, we um, we saw. You know, they've got a massive, I think, where I, the Brazil herd has risen by 100 million in 20 years, 100 million extra. Jesus. They love their beef, you know. You've yeah, been, yeah. been to one of those Argentinian-Brazilian restaurants. Yeah, not bad, eh? Oh, you got to take a big knife when you go there. <laughs> but but they're, they're also, I mean, one of the problems is that their population looks at that beef as their, it's, it's what they stand for. And yep. so... When we've seen it from time to time, when there is strong export demand and they start exporting, and of course pushes up their price internally, domestically, the, the natives get restless. The yep. population gets a bit angry, and so then the government says, "Right, oh, we'll either put a ban on exports, or we'll put a tariff on, or we'll do something to winter up the market." And um, you know, you would think that's going to continue that sort of activity, but mm. you know, to see 100 million extra cows in in 20 years, extra cattle. Yeah. It's just amazing. That's amazing. And, and China's been investing in infrastructure, isn't it? And I, I imagine they're not doing that out of the goodness of their heart. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, yeah. China invests everywhere. But yep. you're right. It, it is mainly investing in ensuring up their their systems and their system relies on reliable food. They, they invest in places like Africa because they need the minerals, et cetera. Yep. So you're right. Uh, and, and that will mean that that tells us again the, you know, while there's always this threat of the big cattle herd in, in South America, it tells us again, though, that there are countries that are really desperate to try and get hold of it because they'll need it. Thanks, David and Rob. We'll pause the discussion there and you'll be able to listen to part two of this episode next week. Take care. Take care.